Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mark Breslin. Mark is a legendary in the Canadian comedy scene, best known for being the founder and CEO of the Yuck Yucks chain of comedy clubs. He had a front row seat to the development of major Hollywood heavyweights, including Jim Carrey and Howie Mandel, so we'll have lots of good stories for us about before they became big shots. A stand-up comedian himself, as well as an author, actor, and producer, Mark's influence on the arts led to his being appointed as a member of the Order of Canada in 2017. Welcome, Mark, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Uh, I'm actually in my home office right now, uh, which is in my home uh, close to Casa Loma. And how's your summer going so far? Um, well, I like Toronto in the summer. Everybody seems to want to get out and go to a cottage. Um, I'm not a cottage person. Uh, I, I don't like Toronto in the winter when it's really cold. And um, I have to wear eight layer, layers of clothing and everything is difficult to get to. So um, I'm actually quite happy here. I, have, I live with my wife and my 11-year-old uh, son. Uh, and just to give you some perspective on that, I'm 70. And uh, I think in the days past, men had kids younger. And then I had my daughter when I was in my 30s and I was seen as doing it late. And I know now you may see it as a chance for you to be a little more, I don't know if mature is the right word, but you have a better understanding of where you are as a father. Would you say, and maybe you can't keep up with them on the soccer field, but maybe you're better suited to pass on life's lessons. Well, I'm very lucky. My son, I'm not, I'm not very physical at all. Um, I, I've never played sports. I've never been interested in sports. My son is not a sporty kid, so I don't have a lot of physical demands on me. Um, I do have a lot of mental and emotional demands on me, which is yeah. a different thing. Um, but, you know, um, when you're an older dad, certain things start to come into focus. Um, and one of them is what you lose in energy, you gain in wisdom. Um, so, you know, there's not a lot of energy that I put out that's wasted. Everything ha- is targeted and everything has a point. So that's makes up for the fact that I'm, I'm much older. The other thing that is very important for older dads, and by the way, the older dad now is kind of like the 40-year-old mother was uh, back 25 years ago. People would say if a woman was pregnant and was 40, wow, that's really different. Wow, I can't believe you're doing that. Now, of course, women have um, children uh, when they're 40, 42, 44, and it's no, nobody even comments on it. But the 60-year-old dad, first-time dad, is a new phenomenon, and I'm, I guess, part of that phenomenon. But there's a melancholy that goes with it because you know that your time on earth is finite. Mm -hmm. And that means that every moment I spend with my son is golden. Well, this is the lesson we all hear. And uh, it sounds like you're fortunate enough to take it right in. We got to make use of every moment. I want to set the record straight, Mark, with you right off the bat. Are you the cousin of technology evangelist Mark Saltzman or is he the cousin of Mark Breslin? (laughs) Yeah, we're cousins. And uh, we like each other. And um, I, I don't come from a close, close family. Uh, but whenever we have a chance to talk or see, uh, see each other, um, it's a great thing. Sometimes he comes down to my club. Sometimes I call him with questions about, uh, you know, video games for my, for my boy. Well, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Mark's been on this podcast I know. before. I know. He says you are, quote, super awesome and a mensch. 
for those of you not familiar with Yiddish, being called a mensch is the absolutely highest compliment possible. In fact, I've only met one in my whole life prior to meeting you today, Mark. So that's great to hear. <laughs> Thank you. Let's go back all the way, if I may, and get the Mark Breslin story. Born in 1952, raised right here in Toronto. Why don't you start us right from that? Well, um, I, I was born into a family that was already um, sort of a family uh, because my father and mother had had two girls 20 and 24 years before me. Um, so when I was growing up, it was like growing up with three moms. Uh, they were still in the house, although they got married when I was like three, five. Um, and I, I mean, the average Jewish male is doted upon by his uh, family in an incredible way. But imagine if you had three uh, women old enough to be your mother in the house. Um, so I was spoiled. Uh, I was beyond spoiled. I was um, a big, I, I, I did things early. I could read a newspaper before I was three. Um, the American government sent people to try to take me away from my parents and send me to a private school in Virginia where they would, I guess, train operatives, but my parents turned them down. Um, and that, that's a whole long story in itself. But <laughs> that, um, that, I would say that's a shocking revelation. Yeah, um, but uh, I, was, I was very, very bright and very precocious. And um, I was a good kid, but I was always doing elaborate pranks. Um, setting up a baseball team that my father would coach. Um, and I told all the kids and the kids told all their parents. And one afternoon, one morning and um, on a Saturday morning, uh, when I was about 10, all these kids and their parents came to my house uh, to get, to pick up my father uh, to coach this team. Unfortunately, I never told my father mm. that he would be coaching this team. And so there they are with their bats and um, it looked like, you know, maybe some violence would happen. So I, I wasn't a bad kid, but I was a, um, <laughs> I, I was a puckish kid, you know. Precocious sounds like the word. Yeah. And, and junior high and high school, where'd you go? Well, I went to Oakwood for two years uh, in grade nine and 10, and it was a terrible time for me. Um, I was the, uh, the victim of a lot of anti-Semitism, and um, it was a real sports school um, I was, you know, maybe four foot eight at the time, not good for me. And then we moved, we moved to Forest Hill and all of a sudden everything was great because whereas in, in, uh, Oakwood, people would beat me up physically. But when I got to Forest Hill, people would only beat me up emotionally. Mm. And I was way better at coping with that. And when I was of, in yeah. that school, I, um, sort of distinguished myself the last year by uh, our, by running a presidential candidate that did not exist. Uh, we called him Dave Levitt and he won. And wow. it was a huge humiliation for the school because everybody uh, in the city found out about it. It made the papers and um, I was threatened by the, by the principal that he was going to take away my uh, recommendation to the uni to university and, I reminded him that this kind of thing is exactly why universities would choose somebody. So it was, um, it was a very good time. You know, I made a lot of friends in that school that I still have as best friends today. Uh, when I got to university, it was not as good. I went to Glendon, 
uh, college. That was my first choice because at the time, we're talking 1971 or so, they were still using London as a training ground for future diplomats. Mm. And I, in my complete lack of knowledge about myself, thought, wow, that's what I'd love to do. I being one of the least diplomatic people that I, that I know. Uh, but it seemed like, a, like a, a romantic thing to do. I certainly knew at that point I didn't want a desk job. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to do something interesting. I was being groomed, as you can imagine, to be a lawyer um, and, you know, to move to the suburbs like everybody else. But I was da- I had dabbled seriously in the counterculture and it just wasn't for me. So I thought this was a oh, it was something I could do. But then I realized I wasn't interested in it. And I also in- uh, realized I was not interested in the radical political decisions that I had been making. Uh, and believing in. And so I got more and more attracted to the arts. And at that point, I left Glendon two years in and went to uh, York and I got a degree in English literature. I didn't particularly have a good time there either, but I got a lot of books read. (laughs) I I was reading a novel a day. I was reading a novel a day. Well, as you say, it was 1974 when you graduated from York with a BA in English literature. This being, I guess it would have been a commuter school for you. You would have been living at home, I presume. Yeah, I, li- I lived at home and I, I drove up or I caught a lift with a friend or something. Sure. After graduating, you became director of theater and music at Harbor Front, producing events and activities, including well, comedy nights. You're, you're leaving out kind of um, uh, an important part here. Please bring um, it up. At, at no time did I think that this is what I was going to do for a living. Um, In fact, I didn't know what I was going to do for a living. When you graduate with a degree in English literature, all you can really do is keep going to school or work for a taxi company. Um, I was really lost, very, very lost, very unhappy. But a friend of mine who got a job at Canada Manpower called me and said, "Um, there's a job, there's these jobs at Harbor Front, this new place that's opening up down on the lake, and they need people to talk about the site um, to people who show up because the feds spent a billion dollars uh, acquiring this site and they want to spend more and they want to get the taxpayer on their side. You want to go in for an interview. And I did go in for the interview and I didn't get the job. Mm. So I uh, joined an LIP project at the time, a theater project for bringing theater to uh, underprivileged kids. And I did a week of it and I hated it. And then I got a call that somebody had quit at Harborfront and the space was open, would I take it? And of course I took it. When I did, I did way more than I was asked to do because, you know, I always went out. Every night I was going out to see something. I was going out to a piece of theater. I was going out to see a band. I was going out to see maybe a comic, although there weren't very many at the time. But I was always doing something and I was very aware of who was around in Toronto and who was doing what and what they were doing and if they were any good. The site was being programmed by a bunch of old guys. And they would come up to me afterwards and uh, the day afterwards and say, what did you think of that band last night? And being outspoken, I would say, oh, they were crap. Uh, if you really want a good band, this is who you book. Mm-hmm. And this happened again and again and again until finally they said, well, why don't you pick some bands for us? Which I did. And it was successful. And at the end of the summer, they said, if you're not going back to school, why don't you come and work on next year's programming with us up in the office? And I did. And the next year, um, I started a comedy night uh, with Don Cullen, who uh, just passed away. Um, and he was kind of a mentor. 
And I loved the comics. I just fell in love with these comics. It never occurred to me that comedy would be something that I would like to do. Although when I look back on it, I realized when I was eight years old, I had a three-year subscription to Mad Magazine, even Mm -hmm. at that age. Um, I was watching every sitcom on television. um, And they were good in those. We're talking Get Smart level stuff, Beverly Hillbillies, really good good writing. But it never occurred to me that that was somehow going to be something I could make a living at. Well, um, there was a whole new generation of comedy that was coming up. This is 1974, 1975. And it wasn't people doing old jokes about their mother-in-law. It was very personal stuff. And I just got into it. I started hosting those nights. Now, I never thought of myself being a performer before, but I did a lot of public speaking and I won a lot of public speaking and debating contests. So being in front of people talking was not a new thing for me, but getting laughs out of it was. And um, it all felt like it came together. It was amazing. And I had a lot of friends that I made out of this that were comics. And then Harborfront lowered the boom and fired everybody. And they didn't, they didn't have any money to program anymore. And all my friends said, my comedy friends said, where do I perform? What are we going to do? Well, a friend of mine was running a, a folk night down at uh, Harbor, uh, down at uh, 519 Church Street Community Center. And I said, maybe I can get you on in between the, the folkies, which we did, but it didn't work out very well because the folkies were very idealistic and they all wore, you know, earth colors and they uh, stunk of patchouli oil. Uh, but the comics would wear black, chain smoke and swear every second word. So that didn't work, but I liked the place and Mm -hmm. I went to the board and I said, can I have another night just to do comedy? And they said, yes, we'll give you Wednesdays, but you uh, have to be out by 10 and uh, you have to pay $38 to rent the place. I thought, where am I going to get $38? And then I realized I could charge a dollar to get in, which had never happened before. There were no open mics at the time. There was virtually nothing that would compete with what we were doing. So we started it. I called it Yuck Yucks. Why? Because so frequently it wasn't funny because we just didn't have enough comics. And um, also it was a bit of a nod to the Three Stooges, who I always loved, you know, yuck, 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 yuck. Yep. And um, for the first eight weeks, it limped along. It, was, it, it held about 100 people in a bowling alley shape, in fact, of a room. In fact, it was a bowling alley. Um, at, that was the first Granite Club in Toronto um, mm. many, many years before. And then I got a call from a guy named Jack Capizza, who was the uh, uh, one of the entertainment editors at the, at the Globe. And he said, I hear you're doing something unusual in comedy because it was completely uncensored and stand-ups were not considered Canadian comedy. Canadian comedy was considered sketch and improv. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the 50s and spring thaw. But there really weren't any stand-ups. There was Dave Broadfoot. That was it. So, um, Mark, what was I, the state of stand-up in Toronto at that time, before you had opened this first oh, club at 519 Church? There, there was none. I mean, just there was Dave Broadfoot doing small towns and, um, you know, doing sort of political humor. Uh, and uh, David Steinberg never even did stand-up comedy in Winnipeg until he went to the States. So there was nothing. It was wide open. There was a place called Gene Taylor's Improv, um, which was on Young Street, I think in the basement of the Colonial Tavern. Uh, but you had, uh, the comics had to wear suits and um, they couldn't swear. They couldn't talk about the government. There were all kinds of limitations on them. 
my my I came from a punk place and wanted to say anything, everything. Uh, the dirtier, the better. The more uh, scurrilous, the better. The more transgressive, the better. Um, so that was the state of of Canadian comedy. There was also Second City, which we had been open for a couple of years, which we kind of liked, except that it was very waspy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we felt that it uh, appealed to people from Oakville. We were a bunch of Jews and Italians and uh, Greeks and black kids. And we wanted to tell our story in the way that we told our story, which was without any limitations, without any politeness whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Take politeness out of the equation, leave in the sex, leave in the violence. That was, our, that was our formula. And the formula worked because there was an audience that was not um, uh, being catered to at that time. Your, it was a your small first, audience, yep. but it was um, a vital audience. They came over and over and over again. I got to know so many people who were my customers. I used to know them by name. This community center, Church in Wellesley, Mark, at yeah. this time, was, was this the gay village? Um, it was starting to become the gay village. It wasn't quite exclusively the gay village. Um, that community center was not a, specifically a gay community center, although um, it was run by um, a board of lesbians. <laughs> okay, so there was that. Now, as you mentioned, admission was a dollar. You had one night a week, Wednesdays. And if I understand correctly, you knew when it was time to finish, when a, a janitor would run in and uh, close things well, down on you. Yeah, you flick the lights on and say, that's it, everybody out. So that was our way of uh, knowing that the show was over which is not the greatest climactic thing. But let me get back to the transition, transitional moment because it's really key. Um, Please do. This guy, this guy at the Globe said, came down, took some notes, said, I think I'll have something for you uh, in the Globe on Saturday, a little piece. I said, oh, that's great. Thank you. Saturday rolls around. Um, I wake up late, as, as is my want. And uh, I had a answering machine, one of the first in the city. And usually I have two or three calls. But I had 42 calls and I thought, oh, something's wrong. But I play it. Everybody says, Mark, go out and get the globe. Mark, get, get the globe. Mark, go out and get the globe. So I went out and got the globe and there was a two-page spread in the entertainment section on this new place called Yuck Yucks on this guy named Mark Breslin and how groundbreaking it was. Well, the next Wednesday when I went to uh, the 519 to open it up, there were 900 people waiting to get in. And I never looked back from then. The Two years later, flipped. I raised enough money to um, open up uh, the full-time club, first full-time club, 1978, March 15th, uh, in, uh, in Yorkville. And that, that was, was a, it, just uh, a big black room, yeah. but so many fabulous comics came out of there. I just want to talk about a little of the, the operational, Mark. That's 1280 Bay Street, I believe. Yeah. You came from this arts background, and you were doing it for reasons, I guess you call them artistic reasons, but how'd you handle food, alcohol sales, running a club? Presumably, you didn't have those kind of management experiences in your, in your toolkit, did you? No. And not only did I not have those uh, experiences in my toolkit, I had no interest in them either. The first club that opened up for the first two years, we didn't even have a liquor license. It was a coffee house. Um, and we sold, um, we sold food. And the, but the food where it was mostly like bagels and cream cheese. Um, we had uh, something called the junk food platter because we knew everybody was coming high. Um, if they can't get, if you can't get booze, they're going to come smoked up. And uh, so that junk food platter had all kinds of like literally like junk candy. Um, we used to sell cereal and milk 
uh, and people just like ordered cereal and milk and sat there watching comedy as scooping alphabets into their mouth. It was uh, it was hysterical. Later on, of course, I found somebody who was like a more conventional restaurant manager and they started adding things and we applied for a liquor license. And by 19, 1980 or so, I would say the the enterprise became quite professional. It was so unprofessional in the early days. I didn't even have a bank account. I had a shoebox yeah. and I paid everything in cash and I put all the cash into the shoebox because I didn't know much better. And the expansion, just jumping ahead, at, yeah. its, at its height, you had, was it 15 clubs across Canada? Yeah, I, there may have been even more. It might have been as high as 18, but I also am including some clubs in the States that we we were dabbling in. There was one in Buffalo. There was one in uh, Rochester. There was one in Bermuda. There was one in Maui. And you may wonder why Maui, but... Um, you know, uh, in 1987, I worked for Joan Rivers. I was producing her show in Los Angeles. And uh, when, it, when it was over, they gave me a big check to go away. And I thought, what do I want to do with this big check? And I thought, I'm burnt out. My clubs are still going strong back in Canada. I think I'll go to Maui for a while. And I did. And I started a club while I was there because what else can I do? I can't just sit on a beach. Maui's and it lasted big... until basically I left nine months later. And then, of course, the Maui club dissipated because nobody goes there as a career move. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good for the beaches, though. Mark, when you expanded all these clubs across Canada, and as you say, there's some in the States, were, were these franchises? Were you a, did you have partners? Were you owning them all? Or how did you manage that expansion, so to speak? At the time, they, most of them were partnerships. Um, uh, somebody would have a little club in Edmonton. I'd go to Edmonton and I'd say, how would you like to be my partner in this national chain that I want to build? It'll be a 50, 50 deal. Um, I'll book the talent. You worry about, you know, what to do once the, the audience gets here. And uh, it was pretty successful. Uh, it was a successful model for a while. And then for a number of reasons, we converted sometime in the mid-90s to a franchise model. So all my clubs are franchised now. And what I do is I basically look after the intellectual property of the brand called Yuck Yucks and anything that that might suggest. Okay. And each club individually books their own talent? Nope. We book everything from, mm. from head out of head office. And I personally oversee that to make sure that the comics are, are the right comics to book. Now, on that note, Yuck Yuck's Chain of Clubs is a business where ultimately profit is the goal, but comedy is an art. How did you balance the financial versus artistic in operating and growing your clubs? Well, sometimes that would express itself and play out right on, right, right, right on, 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 the, uh, on the stage. Um, I would be back, I would be emceeing a show, which was the position I always liked. I'd be emceeing a show, opening up my filthy mouth, as my mother would say, uh, to the audience, and then bring on an act. I'd go backstage, and then somebody from, uh, you know, some waitress or the, uh, uh, the club manager would start in on some problem that we were having with, you know, a drink machine, and I'd have to kind of deal with that. And, and then I said, just a minute, just a minute, and then I'd have to run back out sta on stage and be funny again. And this would happen over and over and over and over again. So not only did that ha happen on the macro level, it also happened to me on the micro level as well. Um, I always 
was lucky that I found people that were very good at doing the jobs that I didn't want to do. And for a mm -hmm. long, long time, and even to a degree still, I had a partner named Jeff Silverman who was really yep. key in um, the, what I'll think of as the operations of the, of the business. Not the artistic part, but the operations. Not that I didn't know anything about the operations, and not that he didn't know anything about, uh, about talent, but we definitely had our, our, we each had our strong suits. Well, and that's the best duo. So Jeff would focus more, I guess, as you see on the business side, perhaps you were more on the creative side, but in this balance between art and commerce, you had a very interesting viewpoint, Mark. If a customer complains about a comedian, we get rid of the customer. Yeah. Yeah. I always used to say at Yuck Yucks, the customer is always in the way. <laughs> was our joke. Um, because we had a lot of people, especially toward the beginning, um, that came to the club not understanding what it was. They were looking for Red Skelton um, or they were looking for the subtlety of Second City. And that's not what we were doing at all. But they'd heard so much about Yuck Yucks. They thought, well, we'll, we'll come. There was a time early on in the 70s um, when we would lose a third of the audience. A third of the audience would just walk out. Why? Because they were appalled by what they'd see. And they would scream things like, there are young people in here. <laughs> and I'd say, I know, I want to sleep with them. <laughs> when they would leave, um, and because if a, if a third of the audience left, the other two thirds loved the place, loved what was going on there. I was just dividing and conquering yeah. uh, in, that, in that mode. So once somebody was leaving, there was no point in being nice to them. So as they were leaving, I would call them every, every name in the book and I would get the audience to boo them and say, get out, get out, get out. And then um, as they were leaving, I would say, just understand this. And I would pull out my wallet and I'd take a wad of money out of my wallet and I would wave it at them and I would go, the Jew has your money. <laughs> the Jew has your money. And then I would have everybody chant, the Jew has your money, the Jew has your money. Well, these people had never seen anything like that. So they would write a nasty letter to the, to the owner, not realizing I'm the owner. Yeah. <laughs> so I would get these letters. I went to this I went to your club and I was appalled by the uh, language that was being used and the way that the Lord's name was taken in vain and all that stuff. Well, I had a, a stamp, a rubber stamp made up and the rubber stamp said, eat shit and die. And then in like wedding script, the yuck yucks management, <laughs> I would take this, this, this paper, this piece of paper that people would send the letter and I would stamp it with this big stamp that said that fold it up, put it into an envelope these idiots actually left a uh, return address on their angry, uh, right, on their angry screed, and I would just mail it back to them. This is, uh, this is not modern-day customer service. I don't think you're going to be teaching any uh, business courses, Mark, but this, this sounds more like an outtake from Borat. Well, you know, I mean, it was always, there was always a notion of performance art in what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of it also comes from the fact that I felt subconsciously felt that I was, that everything I was doing was slumming. I was being told that by my parents. I was being told that by my friends. I was supposed to write the great Canadian novel. And here I am doing this kind of stuff, not only in show business, as my mother would say, but comedy, that's the lowest. And I was attracted to it because it was the lowest, because I felt I identified with outsiders and for a variety of reasons. And, um, 
it, it was working for me though. It was really working for me. I was, I had a, quite a reputation, I, certainly in Toronto. I couldn't go anywhere without signing autographs. I remember once going to a movie, I went to a matinee with a friend. Everybody was like a gasp, a gasp that I was there. They actually came on the PA and said, we'll, we will be uh, running our movie uh, 15 minutes late to allow you to get uh, autographs from Mark Breslin, who's in the crowd. Things like that. So, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't working. But the, um, the powers that be, um, you know, the CBC, um, places like that, you know, agencies, legitimate agencies, they all, they all wanted nothing to do with me. The mainstream. Yeah, the mainstream wanted nothing to do with me at that time. At the at the height of the power of your clubs, Mark, would you, was Young and Eglinton kind of the, the the main location, or what was your kind of uh, key location? Well, the key location is always the one in Toronto because in Toronto you have the most comics, you have the most media concentration. Uh, I'm there, so I can use it as a kind of uh, oh, an experimentation lab almost. Um, so, 1280 Bay Street was that place for the longest time. Then we opened up at Young and Eglinton as well. And then it became clear we couldn't really support two full clubs. So we closed the, we closed the Bay Street Club because it was becoming a bit of a dump. Um, it was really showing its age. And we, tra- we went up there. And then that neighborhood, which used to have all kinds of nightclubs at Young and Eglinton, we're talking 1990-ish. Uh, not, not comedy clubs, but just a lot of nightclubs. Yep. They all started to close down. And so we decided we had to be in the nightclub district and we opened up down on Richmond Street where we've been ever since. So we opened up on Richmond Street, I think in 2002. Now, Mark, I was hoping to talk to you about your connection to the second city. In my mind, as an observer, there's kind of a parallel narrative in Toronto between Yuck Yuck stand-up comedy clubs and the second city improv comedy cabaret. As you mentioned, they had opened before you and were a little established before. What was your relationship with Second City? And, and did you see it as kind of a parallel run between them and Yuck Yucks? Was there any collaboration? Were your competitors? <laughs> oh, no. No, no. There was definitely no collaboration whatsoever. First of all, um, you know, stand-ups and sketch comics um, are like oil and water. Um, they usually don't mix. One is, uh, in one, one is representational comedy where you're playing a character. Uh, and the other one, it's presentational comedy where you're basically playing yourself. And because um, I was so interested in the way people present themselves in public, I had no interest in sketch comedy or improv comedy. And that even goes right till today. I'm just not that interested. Um, I also thought that, you know, uh, Second City was very safe, very timid. It prided itself upon being, you know, very of the moment and very topical, but it was topical in a very easy way. Um, the topics that uh, the Yuck Yucks comics talked about, I thought were much more uh, vicious and, um, and transgressive. There was a lot of sex, still is, um, explicit uh, sexual material, um, material that would probably make a lot of people cringe. And, and cringing was part of it too. We wanted to make the audience cringe. Um, we were baiting the audience. We had a very different uh, relationship with the audience than Second City would ever have. And, so and I, I respect Second City for what they do. Yeah. Um, and I usually try to catch their new show whenever it's in, 
when they when they have when they mount a new show. And I always laugh at at least three four sketches in it, but it's not speaking my 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 language of desperation. Well, it's 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 apparent to me there are two very different divergent movements. So you never talked about any kind of collaboration. There was never talk about having both entities in together. Or that was something clearly you weren't interested in. Um, I don't think the audiences are the same. Number one, um, I don't think that um, I. I think I'm. I'm. What we're trying to do is just too controversial for uh, anybody to want to be our partners. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and clearly you like to have also the control, Absolutely. artistic control. Absolutely. I would never give that up. I would on, never give that up. On that note, Mark, you were also a stand-up comedian yourself. You did this for 20 years or more. Do you prefer being the artist or the management or both? Hmm. Well, different times and different, I'd give you different answers. You know, when I first started this, I wasn't particularly interested in the business end of it or running clubs or administration in any way. Um, I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to, you know, upset the bourgeoisie. That was my, that was my goal. Remember, I'm a '60s guy, and so that's not unusual for the times. Um, uh, then, as time went on, um, that became less important to me. Uh, my act became, although it was still pretty extreme, it was extreme yet professional. Um, I still couldn't get on television. But um, people weren't walking out anymore. Mm-hmm. They they kind of learned to live with what I do and 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 like what I do, and I think the world moved a little bit towards us too. And certainly, when cable television came in, um, that changed things because now language wasn't quite the same the same issue. Mm-hmm. Now, this censorship, the, all these issues of free speech and censorship, of course, have uh, arisen again because of all the woke movements. So yeah. I've had enemies on the right for a long, long time, and now I have enemies on the left. Um, and I'm sure I'll have enemies when, uh, you know, the world is invaded by aliens. <laughs> the, the pendulum is constantly <laughs> swinging. Constantly swinging, and I'm constantly fighting it, and I'm constantly swinging against it. I want to talk to you, Mark, about TV. You had some significant involvement in television production, most notably on the Late Night with Joan Rivers show for Fox in the 80s. Can you please tell us the story of how you got involved with that? Well, you know, I never met Joan Rivers. Um, She was one of those comics I just never happened to have met. So when somebody told me um, as I was about to go on that there was a phone call for me from Joan Rivers, I thought it was a prank, but I took it anyway. And it truly was Joan Rivers. And Joan had said, uh, Mark, uh, you know, I've got this new show coming out on Fox. I don't know whether you know about it. Yes, I did. Um, and I'm looking to do some comedy on it. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind if I flew you to Los Angeles and we could talk about comedy and how you think I could do comedy on the show because I'm competing with The Tonight Show and with David Letterman. I said, yeah, okay, sure. Um, she said, can you come this, uh, like this weekend? And I said, uh, yeah, okay. So I told all my friends uh, that I was going down to give Joan Rivers advice. And they said, you're not... <laughs> She's not calling you down to give her advice. She's going to offer you a job as long as you behave yourself. I said, really? You think so? Yeah. So I go down and um, I go to Joan's beautiful house in Bel Air into her mansion. And um, I ask her how she knew about me. And it turns out it's a convoluted story. 
Um, there was a comic named Marjorie Gross, who was just fantastic. Marjorie, unfortunately, died of uh, cancer um, sometime in the early 90s, I guess, maybe even in the 80s. Um, but she was one of the writers on Seinfeld, but she was from Toronto. And I knew her quite well. And um, they had her come up and do a piece for Canada AM. And they asked me to come on the show and critique it afterwards, which was kind of a weird thing anyway. But I said, okay. So Marjorie does her act. And then they say, okay, now we're going to talk to Mark Breslin from Yuck Yucks. And I offered my analysis of, of her act. Okay, flash forward and Joan's sitting in a beauty parlor getting her hair done. And a woman comes up to her and says, my niece is the funniest person. You have to put her on your show when it, when it premieres. And Joan, being the nice person that she is, says, okay, do you have a tape? Send me a tape. Joan is watching the tape. She's working out on her Stairmaster at home. And yes, Marjorie is very funny and should be on the show. But because she's on the Stairmaster, she doesn't get up to change the channel once Marjorie's finished. It then segues into my analysis. And now Joan's looking and saying, who's this guy? He seems to know an awful lot about comedy, and I don't even know who he is. So she calls Howie Mandel, who's her, I guess his, he's the designated Canadian yeah. in her life, and says, who's Mark Breslin? And he says, well, you know, he does, he's done this, he's done that, he's done these things. Um, Joan, yeah, you, if you're interested, you should bring him in for, for an interview. And that's exactly how it happened. Wow. And what was your what was your opinion of Joan Rivers at that time before having met her? Were you a big fan? Yes, I was a big fan. I was a big fan. She did very edgy, mean comedy, and I thought that took a lot of guts, especially coming from a woman. Joan's a game changer. Before Joan, most of the women doing comedy were freakish. Uh, you know, it's Toady Fields with one leg and and Phyllis Diller with like clown makeup. And then Joan comes along and Joan's relatively normal looking and talks about normal things in her life. And so she's a big game changer. And every female comic um, owes a huge debt of gratitude to Joan. Well, I loved was, working with her. Yeah. She was great. And you, you can tell here's the litmus test. The litmus test on comics. Uh, who have television shows is how they treat their writers. Because like I knew somebody who was the head, who, I knew somebody who was a writer for Johnny Carson uh, and he'd worked there 12 years. And I said to him, what's Johnny really like? He said, I don't know. I've never met him. Wow. Johnny would only deal with the head writer. The head writer then dealt with the other writers, but that's not Joan. Joan would have preferred to sit in the writer's room all day long and trade barbs and quips with her writers. Yeah. She loved writers. And to set up the kind of uh, huge scope of this, Mark, and you can correct me if I go, I'm going to try to set this up properly. So this is 1986. Fox is nothing. Fox is unknown. They're just getting going. Joan Rivers found out kind of in a backwards way that she was not being considered to replace Johnny Carson when he was going to retire, even though she was at the time the permanent guest host. So this was a huge move for her, apparently, in doing it. Uh, Johnny Carson got so miffed and irked. He never had her on the show again. This relationship was damaged. And all this pressure is on Joan Rivers starting this show. You are now involved. And the pressure must have been immense. The pressure was immense, although I have to say, Joan did everything in her power to insulate all her staff and producers from that pressure. But I could see it working on Joan, and especially on her husband, who was the executive producer at the time. Um, they eventually got rid of him. Uh, and he eventually committed suicide. Yes. 
Well, this, this story has an unhappy ending in the sense of, first of all, the show lasted about six months before being canceled. As you note, Edgar Rosenberg had separated from her, committed suicide after, and from there, the project was over. Why did this show not last? Well, I don't think they gave it enough time, number one, because nobody had really challenged Carson on any kind of a, a long-term level. Um, there may have been some sexism involved that people didn't want to see a female talk show host. And to this day, um, can you name any that are part of the, the top tier? Nope. No, you still can't. I mean, I think what Samantha B does is great. I thought what Lily Singh was doing was great, but they're not on top tier. Um, and I think the sexism is part of the problem. Another part of the problem was the way that Fox sold this show. Fox had affiliates all across the country and they had to, Fox had to convince them to take the show instead of running old movies. Then the old movies cost them like a hundred dollars, right? And this would cost them a lot more, but said Fox, if she doesn't get a certain amount of share and a share is a share of market of the market that's measured by, uh, you know, Nielsen ratings, um, then you don't, we'll pay you money. They were so confident and overconfident in how Joan could uh, bring, uh, bring audiences in. And those audiences didn't quite show up. And now Fox is sending out vast amounts of money to all these affiliates to keep the show going. Well, at mm-hmm. that point, um, you know, the die was cast. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, in the future, this eventually became Arsenio Hall's show where he kind of broke out. Um, It did and it didn't. Um, Arsenio did some weeks and I produced those weeks uh, because I worked after Joan was was fired. I was still producing the show. So um, we were looking for a a permanent host. Um, Arsenio was one of the people who we were looking at. Arsenio did a great job. I urged Fox to, to hire him. They they fuffled, they dropped the ball. Paramount wound up producing the show and syndicating it across the country. And they gave, uh, Fox gave up on the talk show uh, about eight months later and brought in a thing called the Wilton North Report, which was way ahead of its time. It was sort of like Spy Magazine, um, but again, way ahead of its time. It only lasted I wasn't on that show. I was, I was fired uh, before I was let go uh, before that show started. Um, and it didn't last more than four months and it was over. And I don't, I, I think they just went back to movies. Is it true that at one point Howard Stern uh, shot a bunch of pilot episodes and he was being considered to be a, a take over an iteration of this late night show? Gee, I don't remember, but we used a lot of DJs. Yeah. We used a lot of DJs. We used Rick D's. Uh, we used some guy from Chicago who was like famous in Chicago. Um, I don't remember the Howard Stern. What I do remember is Frank Zappa. Okay. Frank Zappa was a genius booking. Whoever said, Mark, you got, we, we're going to put Frank Zappa in for a week. And I got to work with Frank Zappa for about two days before they fired him <laughs> um, because he was impossible to work with. And I thought this was a brilliant idea for a, a co-host. He had a robot. That's ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time. Uh, Zappa was ahead of his time in so many ways. But um, Craig Ferguson had a robot as his sidekick. That's right. Yes, that's right. Anyway, uh, he was he was difficult to work with, I guess. Um, They were afraid of the demographic that he would draw, that he wouldn't draw enough people. um, And they thought twice about it and they they paid him off and sent him away. Mark, I want to talk about a big moment in your life. 
Order of Canada. Yeah. 2017, you were appointed a member of the Order of Canada. There apparently was a bit of a miscommunication when you got the initial phone call. Well, I thought they were ordering me to leave Canada. <laughs> Why did you think that? <laughs> because I'm me. Um, no, I, um, I know that um, I had been up for the award for many, many years, and it's something you don't get right away. They tend to give it to you um, when you're um, in the twilight years of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm not the cuddliest of, of comics. There are other comics that I think are easier to deal with, um, but they gave it to me, and I was very proud of them for taking the chance on, on, on you know, we're giving this amazing, amazing honor to somebody who opens up a dirty mouth, who always says the wrong thing deliberately. Um, I'm a troublemaker, and um, they gave it to a troublemaker. They don't <laughs> often do that. Is it true when they called you though that you uh, thought you were you got the message confused and you thought they were doing a tax audit? Or yes, yes. I, uh, well, I, I don't know whether I actually thought it or I was having fun with them. But uh, when I call it, when they call, I, I got a call from the office of the governor general, and um, I called them back and I said, "Look, I paid my taxes. I don't know what you're what you're coming after me for." And and they they laughed. I said, um, "They said, Will, are you willing to accept this award?" And I said, considering the way that the uh, indigenous people of this country have been tre- uh, treated, I absolutely and categorically refuse to take this award. And then I waited a beat and I said, I think I can be on a plane in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> you were going to be there. The governor general who gave you the award, as a side note, was Julie Payette, who was a former astronaut, but uh, she apparently also had some issues. She ended up resigning because she created and allowed a toxic work environment but do you remember the ceremony and, and your memories of receiving the Order of Canada? Yeah, and she was delightful. Um, she was delightful in every way. I was only there for a day, so I can't comment on what happened after I left and before I was there. Yeah. But while I was there, she seemed to be having a wonderful time. She talked to everybody, which is what you have to do in that job. Didn't make anybody feel left out. Um, she stayed late and played piano uh in in the in Rideau Hall for those of us who wanted to stay late um she was really good to the kids um the kids were not invited to the later like ceremony uh the dinner but they were invited to the ceremony she brought all the kids up to the front of the room so that the kids could see their dads and their moms and their sisters getting these awards and my son was right up there in front and he didn't have to crane his neck and look over a tall person i thought that was really sensitive of her um i saw absolutely no evidence of any uh, undoing or malfeasance whatsoever with her well this was a great moment for you and i have to ask mark where do you keep your order of canada is it a medallion it's a medallion and i have it in a safe and my, my safe in my home well, a great member. But they also give you a small one that you can put on your lapel. Okay. And good. I always put that on my lapel of my bathrobe when I don't <laughs> feel like uh, doing the dishes. Well, it, sh- it carries weight, I hope, even today. Uh, I still have to pay. You know what? I wear it at Starbucks. I still have to pay for my tea. <laughs> it only goes so far. Yeah. Mark, this section of our interview is called Drop Some Names. Here's some good stories. Jim Carrey, please go. Okay. Well, you know... I could take big credit for Jim Carrey if I wanted to, and yet I don't because the truth of the matter is I never understood his act and what he was doing because he was doing a really old school act. 
Um, and people loved it. I believe I, I wasn't blind to that. I wasn't a fool. Of course, I booked it. But when he would be on, I would go into my office and I'd do paperwork <laughs> because I really couldn't care less about somebody doing a a, a great impression of Elvis or uh, Peter uh, or Henry, Henry Fonda. It was just too old school show business. But Jim loved that old school show business. Much, much, much later. Um, I started to like what Jim did when he was doing his, his movies and there was some edge, but he had spent some time in the company of our mutual friend, Sam Kinison, who mm-hmm. was wonderful at uh, bringing people's dark sides out. Howie Mandel. Well, Howie, I loved on site. Howie, uh, Howie, um, Howie and I come from a similar Jewish background and I think we speak the same language in a lot of ways. And what Howie did that I loved was that Howie would do anything. And I mean anything to get a laugh. And that was so un-Canadian. He mm-hmm. was so impolite and so aggressive in his comedy. Um, not dirty, but, but aggressive. And um, he would, he would make you laugh. He would wear you down. He would, he would do anything he could and he would, and he would make you laugh. So I always loved Howie's, Howie's work, uh, how he invited me to his, uh, his wedding. I was at his wedding. We still keep in touch, um, you know, as much as you can with a multi, 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 multi millionaire. <laughs> he is big. The late Norm MacDonald. You know, Norm, um, Norm wrote me a beautiful letter when I uh, got the Order of Canada telling me how much he learned from me, how much he appreciated me. Um, how there was nobody else in the business like me. Uh, and in his book, he tells the, the, the famous Kinison story, okay. although he gets the number wrong. And the Kinison story, which comics know, and this is part of my reputation. I brought in Sam Kinison before anybody did, before he was a star. I saw him in Los Angeles. And when I told the people at the comedy store I wanted to book him, they couldn't believe it. They tried to talk me out of it. And I said, mm-hmm. nope, nope, I want this guy. So he comes to Toronto and he hasn't got his act together quite yet. I booked him too early. And people were walking out. And one night, everybody walked out. I mean, everybody walked out on him. So I went backstage, and he's sitting there dejected. And I pulled out my wallet, and I took 100 bucks out of my wallet. And he probably thought I was going to say, okay, Sam, here's your $100 for tonight. That's it. Um, get on a plane and go home. But what I said was, Sam, this is a $100 bonus. You get this bonus for walking the entire crowd. And every night you walk the entire crowd, I'll give you an extra $100 for doing it. But you have to walk every single person or you don't get your extra $100. And he was stupefied. But it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship between myself and Sam. Uh, Norm loved that story. The only difference is when Norm tells the story in the book, I give him $1,000. And in 19... 82, I don't think I would have ever had $1,000 in my wallet. Makes for a good version of the story, though. But it makes the story, gives the story more jeopardy, that's for sure. Mark, how about Russell Peters? You know, I thought Russell Peters was going to be a star from uh, very early on, but not everybody saw it my way. And I do remember going to uh, Just for Laughs with him and uh, getting the people I had to deal with an American comp- management company to show them acts before anybody else saw them. And I alerted them to, to Russell and they watched him and they came back and I said, what do you think? And they said, well, he's very funny, but what is he? He's not black. He's not white. He's not Mexican. Where's the marketplace? And I said, every other place in the world. And they, Americans just don't, uh, at least at that point, Americans didn't think globally. 
So nothing happened with, with Russell. Uh, and he was the beneficiary of getting on the internet at the right time before everybody else got on. And that's how he became famous. Mm, which is certainly a different way of breaking than Yeah, that had not happened before. Now, Mark, I want to hear about your interactions with Ben Mulrooney. Was he aware of your Brian Mulrooney joke book, <laughs> Son of a Meech? You know, we never talk about it. <laughs> um, I see Ben at my health club a lot. Um, and uh, he has kids that are my, my son's age, and they play in the pool. But I make sure that I do not mention that book. He may not be aware of it. I don't know. I, I, just, I just feel that let's leave well enough alone. Did you work with Jerry Seinfeld? Have you ever worked with him? And in particular, did you enjoy the uh, conversations captured on his series, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, which is very process-driven? Yeah. Um, I used to book uh, Jerry when he was, you know, just another comic in New York. And I used to bring a lot of people in from New York at the time. We're talking late 70s, early 80s, because I didn't have quite enough headliners here in Canada to be able to uh, uh, headline them. And by the way, that's always been one of my uh, one of the things that I'm proudest of is I hire I have a hiring Canadians first policy. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons I got my order of Canada. Um, just because somebody has done two shots on, on Conan doesn't mean that they automatically should replace a Canadian for, for work. Mm -hmm. But in those days, I did use a lot of uh, American uh, comedians, specifically out of New York. And Jerry was one of them. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've always been a big admirer of Jerry. I recently worked with him on a, a project I do every year with David, uh, David Goodman. Uh, called uh, Humor Me, where we, it's like a CEO executive challenge, and we challenge CEOs to uh, do 15 minutes, uh, sorry, six minutes of stand-up in front of a thousand people, mm. and they raise money for it, and we raise about $2 million a year for usually a children's charity, and we have a big comic at the end uh, go on. So we've had, you know, uh, uh, any number of people, uh, Jim Jeff, uh, sorry, uh, like Jim Gaffigan and Dennis Miller. And one year we had Seinfeld and it was kind of a reunion for myself and, and Jerry. And he said, can you believe it? He said, I've, I've been doing this and I'm worth $880 million. He said, and sometime in the near future, I'm going to cross that billion dollar threshold. And no comic has ever done that. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Rick Moranis was someone who, I guess, would you say he straddled both worlds? He was in the Second City world. He was in the Yuck Yucks world. Yeah, he was in the Yuck Yucks world in the very beginning. We're talking 1976. And um, by 1978, uh, when we opened up our full-time club, I said, Ricky, um, I want you to headline the club. He said, you know, I'm just not that interested in stand-up. And I remember him saying to me once, he felt that stand-up was like begging for laughs. Um, he felt way more comfortable doing characters, uh, Second City style, and, uh, and doing comic acting. Um, and I haven't seen him in a very long time, but I always had very, very warm feelings about Ricky. We used to spend a lot of time after the shows going out for, for drinks and, and talking about girls. We, we used to have a lot of fun. I miss Someone who's, sorry, go ahead. I miss the guy. I miss the guy. I haven't seen him in 30 years. Someone that's in the news a lot today, Jeremy Piven, 
most well-known as playing Ari Gold on Entourage. He's apparently working hard on a pivot to stand-up comedy. He's grinding away. What do you think of this move? Uh, and what do you know about he's trying to capture a new skill in his uh, artistic tool belt, so to speak? Well, we, we booked him. Um, we booked him for a week in Toronto. We booked him for a week in Niagara Falls. Um, and it was an act that was kind of um, more of a story about his life um, rather than bits, uh, than comedy bits. But he's a very engaging guy. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but he comes from a family of uh, very important um, theater people. His mother is considered one of the greatest comedy, uh, sorry, acting coaches in the world. And I think his father is a director of some sort. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that Piven could do that. Um, it's a very ego driven comedy. Stand-up comedy is a very ego driven business. And Jeremy Piven has no lack of ego. Well, that, so, that was apparently uh, so there's a also, good fit. There's a good fit there. He seemed also very committed to doing it the right way, earning his hours, so to speak. Did you already, has that booking already taken place or? Oh yeah. It took place before, um, before the pandemic. So where does he stand kind of, uh, I don't know if you're negrading these comedians, how is his transition to stand up going? It's going okay. I haven't seen what he's been doing since the pandemic. And you have to keep up with comics because they change. They morph um, in terms of what they do. What he did uh, when, I, when I booked him, I guess it was four years ago, maybe even five years ago, um, is probably not what he's doing now. But I haven't been down to Los Angeles to, be, to watch, so I don't really know. Mark, do you want to comment briefly about the story, the Ron Vaudry court case? Uh, this had gone to small claims court after a comic, Ron Vaudry, called a woman who heckled him fat. She was fat. And this went into the court system. Yeah. The woman took, her to, took him to court. And we, we, um, we testified in his favor, explaining that that's part of comedy. And although that, uh, it might be kind of mean-spirited to call somebody fat. Um, it's not illegal. And everybody knows there's, there's, when you go to Yakas, there's a, there's a sign that says, you know, portions of this show may be offensive to people. Um, I actually, what it used to say was portions of the show may be offensive to small-minded idiots from Ohio. <laughs> but then we had a bus tour from Cleveland and we took it down. But it um, um but yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There were a lot of people. That that's an old case. What do you have a date on that case? I don't have a date on that, but okay. uh, it, it was. Says, it must have been in the 80s. Yeah, uh, when people really didn't know what stand-up comedy was all about. Um, it would it would be very difficult for even to even get that far now in a court case because it's assumed that everybody knows what stand-up comedy is and that yeah. there's a there is an undertone of viciousness to it. And why are you sitting in the front row? Yeah. Well, that's always been rule number one. Don't sit in the front row unless you're prepared to take it. And some people want to take it. I can't tell you how many people, especially in the, in the early days, would say, uh, would like slip me a 20 and say, get me in the front row. I want, wow. I want, I want the comic to pick on me. <laughs> that's the last thing I'd want. But I guess there's another slice of the audience out there. Yeah. Mark, talk about mentoring. You were a founder of Humber College's School of Comedy. What does that mean to you and why did you get involved? Well, Joe Curtis, who was the dean at the time, um, came to me and said, we have a fabulous uh, jazz program. Do you think you could re rejig that as a comedy program? Can comedy be taught? And I said, well, I think anything that can be learned can be taught. And I'm not sure you can turn, make somebody funny, but I think you can take somebody funny and make them funnier. 
Um, so let's see what happens. So we did a couple of uh, week-long summer events. They were wildly successful, and it turned into, well, I think we'll be, I think we're in our 18th year now. And some really great people have come out of that program. Levi McDougall, who's the head writer on Conan. Um, Nathan Fielder, who um, does that show, Nathan for, uh, Nathan for You. Um, he's a graduate. Uh, he's a graduate. In fact, there's a, an article on him he, uh, in this week's New York magazine. And he talks about Humber and uh, how Humber helped him. So uh, there's lots of different people that have graduated that have made it quite well. Nikki Payne is another one. That's fabulous. And, and today that program, I, I guess, post-pandemic, so to speak, we'll be back in person. I guess it probably got online at one point. Yeah, it hurt us, of course, to be online. Comedy is one of those things that you really need to be there yeah, for. Absolutely. And um, I, think, I think we'll see it come back to life starting this year. Great. Well, Mark, as we close, thank you very much for your time. I'd like to ask about your plans for the remainder of 2022 and beyond. What are you working on these days? Well, I'm working on getting more asses in seats, uh, which is a really important part of the equation because uh, let me tell you that uh, COVID has really hurt everybody and people are still a bit nervous about going out. It's not that we don't have any people coming in, but we want to get back to our, you know, 85, 90% capacity rates. And then we have some new clubs we want to open up in the country. We've got four we're looking at in four new locations, which is great. And, um, we are very, very, uh, we're very excited about um, a media, um, a new media, a new media company that we're trying to put together to raise funds for media iterations of Yuck Yucks. Okay. So my time is, my time is busy. You continue to have lots on your plate. Where can we best follow you, Mark, and know what is up at Yuck Yucks? Well, the best place to follow me is to as the corner of Young and uh, Young and Bloor. Um, <laughs> I'm often there because there's a lot of stores I like. So if you see me, uh, just start following me. Yeah. Um, alternatively, you can also just go on the web on on. Um, I have an Instagram site. People do help me out with this stuff because, as I say, I'm not particularly com- computer literate. Um, and and also on the Yuck Yuck site itself. Um, Very good. And that is yuckyucks.com. That's right. Well, thank you very much, Mark, and we wish you a good remainder of your summer and all the projects you're working on. Thank you, and to you too. And to the listener, thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. On behalf of Mark Breslin, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.
I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.